Good morning. Have a seat, everybody. I'm going to grab the stool over here. Good morning. First of all, that was just beautiful. Thank you so much, Denise. That, I hope that we can continue in a spirit of rest this morning because that's the way that I've already felt by being together with you all and worshiping with you. It's, you know, I'm not feeling great. It's Christmas week. We can talk about that here in a second. But, you know, I, I think this morning, as much as anything, I needed that sense of peace and that sense of rest. And I hope that we, as we look at God's word, will be in Luke 2 some this morning. I hope that we can all just kind of continue in that spirit because it feels good. It feels like what's needed. Uh, for those that don't know me, my name is Nate. I'm one of the pastors here at SOMA. Um, and from time to time as I speak, I almost always have somebody uh, speak with me. This morning, my wife, Deb, is going to help us uh, by presenting some of what happened after the Christmas story. We're going to deal with Luke 2, but not the verses in Luke that we usually read around Christmas time about the birth of Jesus. But we're going to read some of the verses in Luke that have to do with what happened uh, after Jesus was born. Traditionally, historically, um, a lot of scholars believe that, that Mary was one of the sources for Luke's gospel, that he talked to her and he interviewed her because it has all these details about how she felt. You know, Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart, which is like, how, how would Luke know what Mary was feeling or thinking about any of this stuff if he hadn't talked to her and asked her? And a lot of the stories that are like sort of odd, and it's like, why is that in there? It's because these were Mary's reflections of her baby and what she was remembering years later, years after he had been crucified, Mary had these thoughts. And so uh, Deb is going to share some of those um, in, a, in a little bit of a dramatic way as a way of um, capturing Mary's voice and capturing uh, the voice of a woman who was intimately connected to Jesus in a way that nobody else ever was. So uh, we'll have Deb uh, come up in a little bit and, and share some of those um, some of those thoughts of Mary. This week uh, was a really good Christmas for our family. We, we had a really good Christmas. Uh, it may be because some of our family was out of town. We're going to do Christmas with them tonight. But it's one of those things, right? We always ask each other. I heard it like all around the room all morning. We always ask each other, so, so how was your Christmas? You know, <laughs> was it a good Christmas or was it a bad Christmas? And if somebody's like, no, yeah, it was pretty good. Everybody's like, okay, good. You know, as we as we deal with the emotional aftermath of Christmas and getting together with family and um, the incredible memories and the joy and the excitement and also the conflict and the unresolved issues and, and the, the, the excitement of the presence and then the cleanup or the assembly of the presence afterwards, uh, I always wondered if baby Jesus just played with the box, right? When the <laughs> wise men brought him the cold frankincense and Murray, he's like, this is a great box. Um, my family went to see on Christmas Day, as we always do, uh, we always go to a movie. And this year we went to go see the new Spider-Man movie. And if you're wondering how they can make a new Spider-Man movie, this is like, what, the fourth or fifth different, like, new spider Oh, there's another new Spider-Man? Well, this one's different, right? <laughs> like, and, the, and this movie did was really good, and it, it kind of made that point, like, hey, there's a million Spider-Man. That was kind of the point. All these Spider-Men from all these different versions and uh, universes came together because that way you could have a Spider-Man for all tastes. No matter what your inclination, there's a Spider-Man for you. 
which is really where we're at as a society now. We all want our customizable personal heroes, right? We want everything to be kind of uniquely tailored to us, and we're caught in a vicious cycle of perpetual reboots. Origin story is the the buzzword of the day, right? We always want to hear that story of where our heroes came from. And to just, every time it gives them a call, oh, now the hero's going to have to, like, face, well, we're going to hit reboot, and we'll just start over from the beginning. If we don't like our Superman, we'll just hit reboot, and we'll have a new Superman. We'll have a new Spider-Man. We'll just do it all over again and start from the beginning. And that's how a lot of times we end up treating Christmas, right, as Jesus' origin story, uh, and we perpetually rewrite it to emphasize the things about Jesus that we like or that appeal to us, whether it's Jesus as refugee or Mary as a woman whose sexual history was challenged or the Holy Family oppressed by a tax-hungry government if you're libertarian in nature. Everybody has their own thing that they want to take out of that story, and every year we just recycle it over and over again. We don't let Jesus grow up. We don't need him to die for us. We don't need him to teach us or command anything or require anything of us. We just keep him in that infant state. And each year we celebrate him all over again. And as long as we never let him grow up and we never let him become a man, then we never have to deal with his right to rule over us. He can just be happy, sweet, cherub-faced, loving, baby Jesus, and never mean anything else. So this morning as we hear what happened after the advent, what happened once the shepherds cleared out, what happened once the choirs of angels stopped singing, what happened once the wise men packed up and left, remember that if we want our faith in Christ to be mature, we have to accept Jesus as more than just a baby. We have to let him mature as well. So right after the birth of Jesus, uh, the story is told. Um, there are three stories that follow up. So all I'm going to do today are tell you these stories one at a time and then let Nate talk about them a little bit. Um, so if you want to open it to Luke 2 so you can see that I'm not making this up, <laughs> um, it is there, but I'm not going to read it. I'm going to just tell you a story. So if you want to sit back and just listen to the story, that's good too. So she had the baby. <laughs> and Mary had been, from the moment the angel came to her, preparing for that day, right? She was a teenage girl, and she was going to have a baby. <laughs> that's what she was thinking about for nine months that day, <laughs> preparing for it, getting nervous about it, getting excited about it, being afraid traveling towards it, wondering exactly how the details were going to work out. And then it happened. <laughs> that night, she's there, breathing through contractions, undoubtedly missing her mom so badly at that moment. <laughs> and it happens. She gets through it. Animals everywhere, clutching Joseph's hand. The baby's born. She looks down at him. He's her son, and he's beautiful, and she's happy and she takes the closet she's prepared, and she wraps him as tightly as she can, but she's not very good at it yet. And she wraps him up, and she lays him down, and she looks at him, and then it hits her. <clears throat> oh, this was just the beginning. <laughs> this day that she'd been waiting for and preparing for and fearing came, and it was just day one. <laughs> now 
she has to raise a son, <laughs> the son, <laughs> and how on earth <laughs> is she going to do that? And so she sat and looked down at him and just suddenly felt more fear, more inadequacy, more everything than she ever felt in her whole life. And it didn't have too long to sit in before a bunch of shepherds showed up and they're all excited and they have this story and there's angels and there's songs and there's light and they're excited and God himself told them that this baby is the Messiah and he's come to save them. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. And for that moment, she can feed off of their excitement. She can feel it again. She can be like, yes, okay, God's confirmed. This is true. This really is his son. He's got this. It's all under control. I'm good. Their spices are excited. Joseph is smiling. And then they're like, we're going to go tell the town. And they leave. And before too long, <laughs> she feels that peace and confidence eke away and eke away. And there they are again, just Mary and Joseph, two young kids in a barn with a baby. <laughs> and she has to get up at three in the morning to feed him. And as she's feeding him in the middle of the night, all those doubts and fears come back in. What am I doing? How am I going to do this? And they, they begin to settle in. You know, she learns the routine, the sort of uneven rhythm of feeding and changing and taking care of a baby, rocking him to sleep. And Joseph gets some work, so they're getting by. Things are okay. They're just staying there in Bethlehem. And from time to time, the shepherds come to visit, and that really helps because they're still excited. <laughs> um, but sometimes their excitement is a little irritating, too, <laughs> because they seem to think that now this baby's come, it's all going to change. It's a miracle, and everything they waited for is going to happen. But Mary has to change his diapers, and every time she does, she thinks, it is a long way from here <laughs> to my people being free and everything changing. <laughs> and so she just keeps doing it, and a few weeks go by. And finally, when Jesus is about six weeks old, it's, uh, it's, her, uh, it's their time that they're supposed to take him to the temple, and you're supposed to dedicate your firstborn son. That's what all good Jewish people did. And so they were prepared to do it, and of course it's not great traveling with a baby, but... Um, it also felt good, I imagine, because it was nice to not just be doing diapers and feedings and whatever, but feel like you're doing something as important as this was supposed to be, right? You're taking the Son of God to the temple of God. There's some meaning here. And so they travel into the temple, and she's going to do her own purification, and, and they sort of walk in, and it's a little anticlimactic, you know, here's the Son of God. But to everyone else, it's just like another young couple, another baby. This is what they do every day. Here's the dedication. Here's the purification. And, and they're being processed through. But as they walk across the um, temple court, suddenly this old man comes walking towards them. And he's not wearing priest robes, but he just has that look of wisdom on his face. And Mary looks over and catches his eye, and she can tell right away. He knows, and he's kind of shaking, and he reaches out, and he wants to hold her baby. And, you know, that makes her a little nervous, <laughs> but she hands him over because this man is not someone she's going to say no to. And so he takes her baby, and he looks down, and she will never forget the words he says. He holds the baby close, and he says, Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your glory. <laughs> 
as you have promised, the, the, the mystery has been revealed, the, the light for understanding for the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And it, there it is. It's that shepherd moment all over again, but even better because it's the confirmation from God. This wise old man who knows scripture is there saying, the angel didn't lie. This is the son of God. This is the Messiah. This is the real thing. And oh my goodness, that weight is lifted for just a minute again. And she thinks, I'm going to remember these words forever. I'm going to remember this when I go back. It's not going to be like with the shepherds. I'm going to remember. And then he looks at her over the baby's head. And he's not done. And he says, this boy is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel. And he'll be assigned to be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts can be revealed. And you also, a sword will pierce your soul. And there it is. That sort of vague dread that had been with her from the beginning crystallizes into one understanding. (laughs) Yeah, her son came to save his people from oppression. But that means for every person that loves him, there's going to be someone who hates him. (laughs) And those are going to be the people with the power. (laughs) And in that moment, she realizes her son is going to suffer and she's going to watch it. So if we want our faith in Christ to be mature and we have to accept Jesus as more than just a baby, that means accepting the consequence of Jesus. There's no consequence to just a little baby who sits there in his crib and the night is silent and holy and the angels sing and that's it. There's no consequence to that. But we know Jesus the man suffered the greatest consequence that anyone ever has in human history death, even death on a cross. And Paul tells us that he wants to know Christ and share in the fellowship of his sufferings, which means that if we're going to let our Jesus grow up, we have to reckon with the consequences of that growing up. We have to share in the fellowship of that suffering because even as a baby, there's a bigness to him. There was an infiniteness about this baby. And loving him meant pain. And even Mary knew that from the time that he was an infant, she was told. Loving this Jesus, loving this baby is going to have consequence. It's going to cause suffering. And the more you love him, the more assured you are of that pain. And that's why people want to keep Jesus a baby. That's why we're so deeply invested in baby Jesus as opposed to man Jesus. Babies are weak. Babies can be controlled and handled. And yet Simeon comes to to Mary and says, some will rise and some will fall and some will seethe and some will bleed because of this child. We can be ambivalent about fables, about miracle babies, but you can't be neutral about the man Jesus. If we want our faith to be mature, he has to be more than just a baby to us. So someone else was in the temple that day 
um, Anna had been a widow for so long, she really couldn't barely remember being anything else. Um, she was a child at one point, happy and carefree, and there was a brief time when she was a new wife with all the hope ahead of her. But very shortly after her marriage, her husband died. And the natural thing to do would have been to get remarried and have kids and be a part of the community, as most people do. But that never happened. <laughs> she didn't remarry. Um, instead, she would find herself going to the temple really often. At first, just a few times a week, and then every day, and then she stayed all day. And uh, time went on, and she just lived and lived and lived. And 84 years later... <laughs> She lives at the temple. She just doesn't go home anymore. And she doesn't have a family of her own, but the, the people of God are her family. She doesn't have a home of her own. The temple of God is her home. And she's well known there. Um, people have realized that in all her time there worshiping and being with God, she's gained some wisdom and she understands him and she's known as a prophet. People knew she was good at taking the promises and the truths of God and applying them to the present day. And people even would come and ask her for advice. And so she was no one's mother, but everyone's grandmother <laughs> with the wisdom and, and uh, counsel that, that could be taken from that. And there she is in the temple. And the, the day that the baby Messiah came in, um, she sees her friend Simeon recognize him. And she's, she has to have known Simeon for a long time. They've been in the temple together for a long time. And she knows he's been promised. He's not going to die until he sees the Messiah. And so she sees him see him. She sees him walk over and take him. She hears his words, and she's just... So happy for him because she's 84 years old. Every one of her bones knows how ready Simeon is <laughs> to be free, <laughs> to go to his peace. And she looks over at him and sees him praising God. And she is just filled with joy. And she looks around the temple at all the people who are there. Some of them work there. Many of them are just there for that day doing their uh, duties or transacting business even, perhaps. And she looks around at them all, and these, these people are her family. This is what she has in the world. And she's just like, I'm going to go tell every single one of them what's going on here today. Nobody should miss the fact that now our family is complete, that the hope that they all came here, they all came here looking for some kind of redemption, to earn it, to beg for it. In some way, everyone is there hoping for redemption. And they're here on the day that he is here, the redemption. And so she goes up to every person that's there and tells them what's happening. And she cannot wait to let them know, this is it, family. Our, our family is now complete and the redemption is actually here. We want our faith in Christ to be mature. We accept Jesus is more than just a baby and we accept that it, that he means a new belonging, a new family. You know, like I said, we ask each other those questions, those like half-scared questions about our Christmases because we know that oftentimes we go home and are disappointed because things are not the way we remembered them or maybe they were never that way <laughs> at all. The things just aren't the way they're supposed to be. And it makes us oftentimes feel alone. And if we do if we have a beautiful Christmas and we love our family and it's close and it's warm and it's wonderful, 
there's also that sense that then it's over and then we got to go back to work and then people all have to go back home and we won't see each other again. And either way, it just hurts. Because the truth is, baby Jesus is bringing something completely new, some new belonging, because he didn't stay a baby. I'm, I'm reminded of uh, two quotes by two great um, scholars, um, C.S. Lewis and Zach Braff. And I will, um, I'm going to read them both because I think that they're really pretty powerful. I, I don't usually use a lot of quotes when I speak, but both of these uh, speak to something very deep uh, that I always think about at Christmas. And C.S. Lewis uh, was writing about this idea of heaven, this idea of a home that we long for, that we don't totally grasp. And he said, in speaking of this desire for some far off, our own far off country, we cannot tell it because it is, it is a desire for something that's never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Wordsworth identified it with certain moments in his own past. But this is all a cheat. If he had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be itself a remembering. It was not in those moments. It only came through them. And that what came through them was longing. Right? That sense of remembrance. Oh, Christmas used to be wonderful. Home used to be wonderful. I know my heart longs for some kind of cleaving to something permanent. Lewis continued, apparently then our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we've always seen from the outside. It's not neurotic fancy but the truest index of our real situation. And, it, and to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. We know that there is a place where we belong. We know there's a family that's permanent. We know baby Jesus grew up to be a king, to be a father and that we are his sons and daughters. We know it because we feel it and we've always felt it. We are hardwired to feel it. <laughs> Zach Braff said in his movie Garden State, you'll see one day when you move out that it just sort of happens and it's gone. You feel like you can never get it back. It's like you feel homesick for a place that doesn't even exist. Maybe it's like a rite of passage, you know. You won't, even, you won't ever have this feeling again until you create a new idea of home for yourself. You know, for your kids, for the family you start, it's like a cycle or something. I don't know, but I miss the idea of it. You know, maybe that's all family really is, a group of people who miss the same imaginary place. And that is what Jesus was promising, and that is what Anna felt, that new belonging, that perfect family. And look, belonging to something new, accepting the consequence of Jesus as giving you a new identity and a new belonging, it doesn't mean that it stops hurting when your own family lets you down. It just doesn't. Loving people, caring about them, means that it's always going to hurt. And it doesn't mean that you get to stop uh, growing. It doesn't mean that you get to be like, well, I have a new family now. I never have to grow up. <laughs> we long for our own families so that we can finally find or recapture that sense of acceptance. But then we get married and it doesn't turn out to be the way we thought it would, right? 
how many of us have had loads of painful experiences, even within our own marriages, even within good marriages and healthy marriages, it doesn't turn out the way we think it's supposed to. And that thing that we want is just always right there. And it's because Jesus isn't a therapy baby. He's our father. and He's calling us to a new family and a new home. And if we want our faith in Christ to be mature, we accept him as more than just a baby. So we moved down the road a few years, and uh, I think for Joseph, after a while, it started to feel like maybe this wasn't going to be as hard as he originally was afraid of. (laughs) The first few years were rough. Ordinary babies are difficult. The crying, the sleeplessness, all of that. This baby was not ordinary, so there were also visiting kings and the need to flee the country in the middle of the night. And years of living in a foreign country, the hardest years of his life, I'm sure, trying to navigate Egypt and hearing of massacres back home. But after a couple of years, they got the news that it was safe to go home. And so they did, not just to Bethlehem, but all the way to their original home, to Nazareth. And they built a house and settled in and had other children. And Jesus grew up and he was healthy and he was strong and people liked him. Because he was a good boy. He was obedient. He was respectful. He was kind to his younger brothers. He was everything you could hope for. And as the years went by, some of Joseph's fears didn't necessarily go away. Pretty much any time he caught Mary's eye, he could tell she was still afraid. But they kind of went to rest because things were good. And he did his best to be a good father. And they, they went and listened to the law being read. And they talked about the law. And once a year for the Passover, they went up to Jerusalem, just like you're supposed to do. And they celebrated. And he tried to be a good dad. And man, talking to this son about the law <laughs> must have been amazing. <laughs> the best conversations of his life, more interesting than what he had with anyone else. And things were just good. People liked his son. And And what's not to like about somebody who's kind? (laughs) And so the day comes that Jesus is about 12. And uh, they travel up to Jerusalem for the Passover like they always do. A group of them, their family, other people from their town. They head up to Jerusalem. They celebrate the Passover. It's a wonderful time. Things are good. And then as a group, they all head back home to Nazareth. And Joseph didn't see Jesus as they're walking along the road, but just thought, I'm sure he's over with his cousins or his friends. He's often off with the other boys. Twelve was pretty mature at that time, especially. So, you know, he's doing his own thing. But when they camp for the first night, Mary comes to him with, you know, the look and says, have you seen Jesus? And of course he hadn't. So, you know, she begins to panic immediately. And, uh, he is like, you know, it's, it's okay. It's cool. So they go around to all the people they've traveled with. Did you see him? When was the last time you saw him? And the consistent blank looks on everyone's face start to make the truth pretty clear. They've left the boy behind in Jerusalem <laughs> without realizing it. So um, I actually have a 12-year-old son right now, and I can tell you, Mary came unglued at that moment. <laughs> I promise you. It does not say that in the Bible, but I promise you it's true, that she lost it. And <laughs> they, 
and insisted that they immediately go back to find him. So they leave the children with their friends and family, other children taken care of, and they head back immediately. And I'm sure Joseph's thinking, okay, we're going to find him. Where are we going to find him? And he has his own worries, but also he's a little worried about Mary and trying to keep her stable and maybe insist that she sleep for a couple hours so that she doesn't completely fall apart. And they get there, and, you know, they go first to the place where they stayed. Nope, no one's seen him. They, they go every place they went for a whole week and see if he's there. No, he's not there. He's not there. He's not there. They ask every person they've ever met in the city of Jerusalem if they've seen Jesus, and he hasn't. And this is three days of searching for their son. Jerusalem is a big city. <laughs> and so they're searching and searching, and they're not finding him, and they're trying to get a little rest at night, but I'm sure not very much. And by the third day, they're feeling pretty desperate, and so they decide They'll go to the temple. Maybe Jesus is there. More likely, he's not, but they'll just pray that he's safe somewhere and that God will help them find him. And so they go in, and they walk in. The minute they walk in, they see him. He's just sitting there across the court, surrounded by a bunch of teachers of the law, and he's talking. He's not dirty and hungry as they imagined finding him, but he's just calm, and, you know, clearly someone's been feeding him, and he's talking about the law. And Joseph can tell by the looks on everyone's face that everyone is just, like, loving this conversation, super interested in what Jesus has to say, and he knows what it feels like. He's had those conversations with Jesus. He knows that they're amazed. Um, Mary notices none of that, though. She immediately sees him, begins to cry, runs through the crowd, pushes aside the men gathered around Jesus, throws herself on him, gives him this huge hug and says, why did you do this to us? What were you thinking? Where have you been? We've been searching for you everywhere. And Jesus is almost surprised. And he says, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I would be in my father's house? And... Joseph's thinking, clearly this is perfectly clear to Jesus, and he doesn't understand why it's not clear to us. But, but from Joseph's point of view, it's not clear. A good son stays with his parents. And a good son, if he has to go somewhere, tells his mother first where he's going and does not put his mother through the anguish that she's been through for the last three days of panic. That's what a good son would do. But this has opened up this whole new door. This whole dream that this was going to be easier than expected is gone in that moment. With the realization that this son is a good boy. But he has his own agenda. And he is obedient and respectful. They can count on his kindness. But they can't count on him to think the way they think. And they can teach him and train him, but they can't control him. And so they go home, and he goes with them, and he's obedient and good. But no one can forget those three days. <laughs> no one can forget this realization that, yes, Jesus is their son, but he has another father, too. And like that father, his ways are not their ways, <laughs> and he's beyond them. So if we want our faith in Christ to be mature, we accept him as more than just a baby, and that means we accept his authority, his authority over us. We don't get to tell him what to do. He's not cuddly yet omnipotent. He confounds us. 
He surprises us. And he demands something from us. We don't get to just leave and assume he's following our itinerary. We don't get to take for granted that baby Jesus is just along for the ride as we head into 2019. He's beyond us, which is right where he's always been, right where he's supposed to be, bidding us to come along with him, not trailing behind. All three of these stories were probably told to Luke by a very old woman. And she's not remembering the kings or the desperate flight to Egypt Those are the details that solidified her son as as king. She's remembering how the shepherds called on them and the haunting old words of an old man who told her her what her fate would be and the face of an old woman who made her feel loved in a way that her own family never would. And she's remembering how it felt the first time that she lost her son. And even for Mary, and especially for Mary, the fight was always to see Jesus for who he really was and not just a helpless baby on a silent night. So we take communion, body and blood, man and God we celebrate that that baby was beyond us was more than us we accept the consequences of his reign on our life we embrace a new family and a new belonging and we rejoice in the fact that knowing him means that we too will suffer and a sword will pierce our own heart Because every week we celebrate his body being broken and his blood being shed. And we say, I'll drink this cup and I'll eat this bread and I'll proclaim this until he comes back. Pray with me. Sweet Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming to us. Thank you for coming to us helpless and weak so that we could know that you understand us because we are helpless and weak. And thank you for growing strong and powerful. Powerful enough and strong enough to save even us. We celebrate you and we love you. We accept you as our king. And we acknowledge the consequences of your reign in our life. You are great and a holy God. We love you. Amen.